This is a pretty exciting day in our home, too. Our youngest son, Joshua, turns 18. Wow, about that? You know, and he's not here, so we can say whatever we want about Joshua, except that this goes out on YouTube. Sorry, Josh. We, uh, <laughs> we realize that for our family, that kind of means that the emergence from the COVID cocoon is complete. We went into COVID with three kids, and we came out of it with five adults. It turns out that even a lockdown cannot stop childhood development. I mean, you, you know what that's been like, right? Because we see it, we're surrounded by it. Kids that were kids when we went into COVID came out, and there they are. They're in charge of the church. How good is that, right? I mean, these little you know, kids with their with their alto voices now appear with a big rumbling bass voice, and they move like locusts through the house, just um, absorbing every little bit of food stuff that they could find. But we know when we look at our kids that there is an adult within them, and that adult is eventually going to come out. You don't have to do anything. It just, it happens. That's the process of, of growth, of adolescence, of, of emergence. But we adapt to the new reality as it's happened. And well, so much has changed in our lives and the lives of our kids. We know that that, that change, that constant state of transformation is part of what makes us human. In fact, it's part of God's promise and his legacy that he accepts us as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we are, that he finds something new for us, and that we're in the middle of a transformation that is profound. We've been looking at the book of Colossians for the past six weeks, uh, looking through the lens of this ancient letter and asking the question, what does it mean to live a life rooted in Jesus? And today we want to consider that subject of change. What is it that actually changes when Jesus comes into the life of a person? What is it that is transformed? The Bible says that in Christ we are a new creation. What does that mean? to be a new creation. Let's pray and then let's dig in. Jesus, the center of all things, the hope of glory, we pray that in these moments, as we speak and as we reflect on your words, God, that our thoughts would be acceptable to you, that you would help us to hear exactly what you need us to hear this morning, what you have for us, and be moved to act upon it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's let's jump right in. Open up your Bibles, Colossians chapter 2. Paul begins with a big assumption. Chapter 2, verse 20. Since then you have died with Christ. That is a really important theme for the Apostle Paul, not just in Colossians, but in all of his writings. It's crucial to know that in following Jesus, there is a death involved. Specifically, it's yours and it's mine. And you're thinking, wow, what a nice way to start a sermon, Richard. Uplifting stuff. But, but we need to start here to get at the heart of it. Paul gets at this theme again and again and again in his writings. Galatians 2, Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. Look, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a great verse, Galatians 2.20. He says the same thing when he writes to Rome, the center of the ancient Western world. Paul says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him. 
Why? So that that body ruled by sin can be done away with. No longer will be slaves to sin. Anyone who has died in Christ has been set free. Set free. We start off in this world with a heart that is capable of, I think, acts of astounding beauty and creativity and goodness. And also capable of some pretty remarkable acts of treachery and deceit and wandering. There is a rebelliousness that just tends to get its own way. Jesus says, thy will be done, but if we're honest, my will be done is, is usually the mantra of our lives. It's, it's in kids, it's in adults. In fact, maturity is probably best described as one long journey of overcoming selfishness and self-absorption. How is it that you move past that old self, that old rebellious life? Paul calls it out. He says that, that we need to let that go. We need to let go of something before we grab onto something. And, and when we say that there is a part of us that has died in Christ, one of the things we're awakening to is the power of what comes into our life to replace it. There is a power, not just that destroys the old self, but that awakens us to something new in our lives. And that's where the change happens. That's what happens when Jesus takes up residence in a life and begins to work in a life. Hey, and by the way, if you're joining us in the room, this is your first time, or the next and many, many times, or if you're joining us online, if you feel like you have never had that moment, where you have just out and out said yes to Jesus. There's always a moment, right? We do our work, we do our fact-finding, we do our wrestling, we pray God for answers, but then there's a moment where you need to respond. And that moment doesn't need to be hard, but it does need to be here. And so if you've never done it, maybe this is your moment. Maybe right now, before we go any further in the message, you just simply say, Jesus, I don't want to live my life apart from you anymore. I can't do it without you. Because when I did, I led, I led a life that was just enslaved to sin. I'm sorry for all of that. I don't want to be a part of it anymore. I want to receive everything that you offer, the power of your death, the hope of your resurrection. I believe it all. I want to begin to live that new self that you promised the Bible says that, that if you pray that prayer, that it, that's how it all begins. That you sincerely receive Christ, you are a new creation. What an astounding promise. The old has gone, the new has come. We symbolize that in baptism. Where we take people and we put them into the water and we hold them down there as long. No, we don't hold them down there a long time. But, but, but you get the idea, right? There is a dying. Something is left behind. And then when they come up out of the water, see a room full of smiling faces, hear the sound of applause, they hear the one voice that really matters and says, now you are mine. New life begins now. That's the good news. The death that we're dying is actually the good news. Because it doesn't mean that we're dying as a whole. It means the part of us that needs to die stays down there. And the part of us that comes back to life, well, this is day one for that. We're no longer slaves to sin. 
Free, free now from the power of that. Free from condemnation. Free from the bondage to and the terror of death. We have, this has been a hard year for our church, hasn't it? It's been a hard four months. We have done more funerals in the past four months than we normally do in a couple of years. And we are grieving these deep and profound losses. And there's a weight to that. But what does it mean to say that we are free now, not from death, but from the bondage that death has on us? Because death doesn't get to speak the last word in our lives, does it? It's only ever meant to be a transition and only ever temporary. We are freed from that. We are free from all of the human rules and legislation and religious activities, frenzied activity like we're on this hamster wheel going and going and going, trying to measure up, trying to earn God's favor. We're free from that. We are free from the guilt and the shame of not measuring up. It sounds good, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I'm just checking to see if they're still awake. Yeah, it sounds good. It sounds good, but there's a problem because if we're honest, there's a part of us that doesn't want to stay dead and buried. It just keeps coming back. How easily that we, we go back to those things that had power over us and enslaved us. We, we layer in all of these rules and restrictions into our lives and we, we think it's going to make us better and more holy and, and God will look down on us and, and smile bigger. But the truth is, it's just making life hard. Because it's fueled not by the power of God and this new life he wants to do in us, but by our own relentless pursuit of rule following. The Colossian church, Paul's writing to Colossians, was made up of people who majored in the minors. They were all about rule following. Now, to their credit, I mean, this is not exactly their fault. This is their background. They were part of a religious culture that was steeped in rules. And when they found Jesus... There was something that was exciting, but there was something that they couldn't quite let go of. You know, following the Torah, the the Old Testament in Jewish language, following the Torah was just absolutely central to their understanding of who God was and what it meant to live for him. And that's a good thing. But, But somehow over time it got calcified and reduced to a list of what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And it's not the Ten Commandments. We know the Ten. For them, there were 613 rules in the Torah. And they tried to follow them all. How can you even remember them all? But that, that was the trap. And, and these young believers in Colossians followed the only pattern that they had known in their life. That rules are the way to please God. And so it's no surprise that they bring this into this this new era in their lives, this, this newfound faith in Jesus. So they are old, or they are new creations, but they're living under the weight of this old yoke. That makes sense? New creation, old bondage. And, and Paul doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He, he asks this question, Colossians 2.20, why do you still live as if you belong to this world? Why do you submit to all these rules? Well, it turns out that the old self, the part that we would love to see dead and remain buried, that old self is resilient. It just keeps coming back. It's like some horrific villain in a horror movie. Just when you think they're gone, there it is again. The old self, clamoring for power, wanting to recreate the same old barriers and restrictions that jam up our lives and get in the way of our relationship with God. We wind up restricting our freedom. 
and creating rules that go far beyond whatever God thought for us. And isn't isn't it interesting that if you were to ask people, particularly young people, about their impression of the church, wouldn't they say it's primarily about rules? This is a place with a lot of rules. And when you come in, we expect that you're going to follow all the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, you stick out. And when you get in trouble, we could call the principal's office and time out and scolding. But that's, that's what life looks like if it's bound to the past. The strongest words that Jesus had for the religious teachers, the experts in the rules and the laws... The strongest words of condemnation that he had were for those teachers. He called them blind guides. You've neglected the important things. You've majored in the minors. You appear righteous on the outside, Jesus said. But the inside is another story. And so Paul wants to keep focusing not on the rule book, but on God who gave us the book and keeps lifting up the name of Jesus. Moses gave the law, he would say, but Jesus gave his very self. Jesus is the point. Let's not make it about the rules. Let's make it about the master. I need to say this, just a, just a little, because I don't want anybody to go away and think, well, we don't read the Old Testament anymore. Jesus loved the law. He loved the scriptures. He loved the Psalms, like, uh, uh, like Winslow read for us today. He sang the Psalms. He was even singing Psalms on the cross. Uh, he, he loved this, but, but he knew the point of the rules. The point of the rules was to bring people to God, not to serve as a wedge between them and God. Don't think I've come to abolish the law, Jesus said, Matthew 5. I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I have come to fulfill them. Everything that they were trying to do is now done in me. So let's not make it about the law so much as we make it about the master, about Jesus. You know, rules can be really comforting. Um, they can help sort of define a life. My wife loves playing games, so she, she loves the rules. I love bending the No, but there's something comforting about knowing the rules and trying to operate within them. And they can make us sound wise and profound and give us a sense of control. We know the rules and we're following. But they're not, as it turns out, very great at transforming people. Rule following has never been a good way to transform lives. That's just behavior modification. And religious behavior modification really has not worked very well. We've tried it for centuries. And the truth is we're pretty good at getting around the rules when we need to anyway. This is tax season. How many of us are finding ways just to get the rules? Just, we're not breaking them. But we're going to see just how far they can bend. Right? We're good at skating around the rules when we need to. And that's why Paul says in Colossians, into, in Colossians 2, that the rules, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Most of our rules are about that sort of stuff, right? There's these pleasures in the world, but they're too pleasurable, so stay away from them. And so we create rules. We, we, we fence ourselves off from these things. Paul says, and he's right, that for the most part, the rules are ineffective in keeping us free of sensual indulgence. So what's the answer? What do we do? Well, Paul says, we start by recalibrating our hearts. Your, your sight line matters. 
What are you looking at? God, lift our vision higher. Allow us to see something more. Not grounded in this earthly reality with all of its hard rules and our failure to achieve them, but no, set your hearts and minds on things above, is what Paul says. We live out of a true identity, our new self, a new creation, and we keep our eyes focused on the one who's doing it. There is a, there's a language that the Bible uses to talk about that, that elevated vision. What does it mean to have an expanded vision of yourself and the world and what God is doing it? What does it mean to be bigger and more generous in the way that we see the world? The Bible calls that kind of sight the kingdom of God. Here's what one writer how they describe that that term that is so prevalent in the New Testament, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the place where God reigns. It's present wherever what God wants to be done gets done. It is the range of God's effective will. God's reign is all around you. It is from everlasting to everlasting, and it is the natural home of your soul. The kingdom of God is the natural home of your true self. It's a big vision of what God is doing in you and in the world. Mark's gospel begins the whole story that way. Jesus appears for the first time on the stage of history as an adult gifted by God. And he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent means start again. Time for the great do-over. Repent and believe the good news. What's the good news? The kingdom of God is near. The time has finally come. How can it be true that the kingdom of God is at hand? Because I woke woke up this morning and I read the news about the Leafs and I went, yippee! And then I read the news about Sudan. And my heart sunk. With all of the the relentless waves of pain and suffering that come crashing over us in the world, with the battle going on in my own heart every day, trying to do what I think God wants me to do. At what point do we say this kingdom of God doesn't look like it's here? Where are the signs of it? What would we expect to see? Let me introduce you to a theological concept, and it's an important one. And uh, I hope it doesn't feel like a cheat, because this is, uh, I think, the, the way that we... We wrestle best with what God is doing in the making of a new creation in you. When we think about the kingdom of God, uh, we accept that the death of Jesus on the cross, the resurrection, that 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 was a hinge point in history. Something changed. Something began there. So you could say the kingdom of God began in Jesus. Jesus was right. It's at hand. It's right here. It's happening now in your midst. The kingdom of God, the power of the cross, the hope of the resurrection. But at the same time, we know that there is a moment in the future. We don't know when, we don't know what day, even the angels don't know the day, the scriptures say. But there is a moment in the future when Jesus will return and make everything right. So yes, the kingdom of God has begun, but no, the kingdom of God is not fully realized, fully consummated, culminated, if you'd like, until Jesus comes again. So here's what we, what we use. Here's the theological language. We say that the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. Now 
and not yet. Have I confused you? Let me see if I can help you with an analogy. Uh, think about the seasons. I grew up in Canada. I'm probably one of the rarities around here, but I, I grew up in Canada, so I know how seasons work. I'm used to celebrating spring in my boots with my winter coat on. March the 20th was the first day of spring in Canada. It was three degrees outside, and it got colder later that week. And then God teased us with a little bit of summer weather, and then it got cold again. But I know that over time, we'll start to have more warm days than cool days. The grass is greening up. The flowers are starting to appear. For some people, that sense of depression lifts. Spring is here, but not yet. That makes some sense. It's here, but it's not yet. The kingdom of God is here, moving through the lives of God's people. An unstoppable roadway being mapped out one life at a time as we make our way towards the fullness of what God is doing. It started and it's going to be finished. And we live in between. It's now and it's not yet. But we want to say as God's people that it's coming. Of course it's coming. And it's here. God, remind, or God reminds the Colossian Christians through Paul of who they are. Let me remind you, using Paul's language, of who you are. You are citizens in the kingdom of God. That is your identity. You are sons and daughters of the living King. You are ambassadors for Christ. He makes his appeal to the world through you. That's your identity. We need to live in this world as if we belong to the next. That's the dynamics of life in the kingdom, the kingdom that is both now and not yet. We live in this world like we belong to the next, because we do. In this world with, with pain and grief and loss, it's really tempting to fall back into the old patterns, subject ourselves to the same old rules, give up our freedom, but that's not the end of the story. Jesus promised his disciples. He says to you and I, I've told you all of these things so that in me you may have peace. John 16, 33. Because in this world you will have trouble. Remember, it's now, but it's not yet. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Sometimes the kingdom is hard to see. Sometimes it's hidden in the world and hidden in people's lives. Sometimes people's eyes get blinded. We, well, the scripture uses a very pictorial language for it. It says we, we see the world like through darkened glasses. We catch the shape and the outline of it, but the fullness isn't revealed to us yet. We shouldn't be surprised that there will be setbacks and struggles and doubt. Our hope is not based on a life that's devoid of pain. Our hope is knowing how things end. We know what's written on the last chapter of the story of our lives. All that's hidden will be revealed. Our real nature will be, will be celebrated. That's why Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, this is the faith that we have. It's the confidence in everything that we've hoped for and the assurance about the things that we have not yet fully seen. 
Discipleship, following Jesus, just means learning to live with that mindset that says we will place our hope ultimately, not only in what God has started, but in what God will finish. Paul says our life is hidden with Christ. Our hearts and minds are being remade, reshaped. We are new creations. But just like those kids who sort of entered the COVID cocoon this big and, and exited it this big, we didn't chart that progress one day at a time the way that, the way that we would be struck by it if we placed a beginning and an end side by side with a three-year difference. Does that, does that make some sense? The, 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 the change is hidden, but it's real. That it's slow, but it's persistent. That we are people who, who live. The hope that we have is like the air that we breathe. As it says in 1 Corinthians, it says, For now we see things only like a reflection in a mirror. But there will be a day. This is the not yet. There will be a day when we see face to face. Now I know only in part, 1 Corinthians says, but then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. Your spiritual DNA will be expressed over time. Keep your eyes on things above. Surrender your life to Jesus. Live in the now, but the not yet. In therapy, when we we find people who are stuck in a bad place. We tell them again and again to remember who you are. In fact, usually during the course of therapy, we are their memory because they've forgotten or because they've listened to a bunch of voices in their life who got it wrong or because the filters in their life won't allow any of God's good message about who they are to get through. So we remind them who you are. A child of God, rooted in the power of the cross, carrying the hope of the resurrection. You are a new creation. God is doing something in your life. We remind them of who they are. And then we encourage them to do the things that they know they need to do to be the person that they want to be. 95% of counseling is just getting people to do what they already know they need to do. God speaks in our lives. We know what we need to do. It's finding the spiritual courage, the moral fortitude to follow through. So you put one foot in front of the other. You trust that there's something bigger at work in you and in your world, and you keep your eyes focused on things above. And then slowly but truly, we inch our way towards glory. I'm not sure how that lands with you today. Maybe you've been trying to do a bunch of things that will that will make your life look better, will make you feel better as a person, or maybe you've just kind of given up and you've resigned yourself to my life as it is now is that's the best it's going to be. However you find yourself today, it's good that you're here. I don't think there's any accidents in your being here, whether you're joining us online whether it's April the 29th on your calendar or some date off in the future, you're here. And you're here is one way that you say with your presence, with your body, I want this in my life. 
So let me just offer three quick encouragements, only a minute each, and then we'll, then we'll wrap things up. First, this, a promise. Following Jesus will change us. It's inevitable. It doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes it can feel like nothing is happening at all. Sometimes it might even feel like you're going backwards. But you're not. You are a new creation. What is most important about who you are, that change has already happened. And then we spend the rest of our days inching towards glory. This makes, this makes living in Christ kind of like an exercise in trust. I just I keep trusting that God is at work. If I were to graph my spiritual life, it probably looks, I don't know, like this, goes up, goes down, goes up, goes down, long, flat spells, maybe some great spells where everything is going up like this, some sad spells where things are coming down. But I trust I trust that God is always at work doing something in me. That's His promise. And we hang it all on that promise that God is doing a work in us and He will see it through to completion when He comes again. Another thing we let go of is the expectation that that change, real change, lasting change, comes wrapped up in nice, tight little packages. It doesn't. If your life is a mess right now, chances are, You're changing. Because that's what change looks like. It is messy. It is uncomfortable. It's very seldom linear. It takes lots of different turns and it takes a toll. And it's worth it. So many of the most profound things that happen in our lives happen in ways that we could never have predicted. We cannot control. We don't make it happen. But we trust that God does. He makes it happen He is in control. Finally, I want you to know this. Who you are right now, today, is not the end of your story. There is always hope. We live with hope. It's the air that we breathe. Nobody's perfect. We like to say that around here. Nobody is perfect. But anything is possible. That's the dynamic of life in the kingdom that is now and not yet. It's never too late. And God will always do what God promises to do. Who you are right now is not the end of the story. Let me give you the end of the story, and this will be the end of the sermon. Colossians 3, verse 4. Here it is. When Christ, who is your very life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's God's defining word about your life, about your true self. It's the hope of lasting change for you, for me, for all of us. Let's pray to him together. Jesus, I I confess that I feel some days like I'm still a long way away from that new self that I want to be. I confess that sometimes I get ahead of myself. I get discouraged. I I wonder, Lord, some days whether you're still doing anything at all in this old heart, but I trust you. And we want to trust you more, Lord. We open your hearts to your work in us. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, fixed on things above, to keep our hearts and our minds focused on you. We'd say, even so, Lord Jesus, even so, come Come in a fresh new way. Come in the fullness of your kingdom. And may your glorious rule and reign over all creation and all things be true today.
and true in our lives. We pray it together in the powerful name of your Son, in Jesus' name. Amen.